Well, good morning. We are continuing uh, a discussion of the book of Jonah. This is uh, moving into the second chapter now. And in the first chapter, you recall that we met Jonah, God's prophet of national triumph in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And uh, as soon as we met him, he walked off the job. He is not going to go to the Assyrians uh, in Nineveh. He is not going to talk to those uh, awful, murderous, conquering creeps. And instead, he is going to totally bail out. And he attempts to do so as thoroughly uh, as his resources permit him to. But Jonah almost immediately discovers that God is not so easily left behind. God sends a storm uh, to stop him. And as it threatens the ship that he's sailing on, he convinces the pagan sailors who are crewing the ship to throw him into the ocean to his death. And when they are when they finally agree to do so after uh, some back and forth and their attempts to find another way, they throw him overboard and God's response when that happened completely awes them. They, you remember, they uh, fear the Lord greatly, it says, and they um, offered sacrifices and made vows to him. And so at the end of chapter 1, Jonah Uh, the prophet of God has accidentally uh, and in fact very much against his will made his first converts of unbelievers. But uh, when we start here and we're starting in verse 17 of chapter 1 because it really goes together with with what we read in chapter 2 in what must have been I think probably a tremendous surprise to Jonah Uh, God does not actually intend for him to die in the ocean. That's clearly what Jonah's expecting to happen. And that's not what happens at all. Instead, God has a saving purpose. So let's start by reading this, starting in the last verse of chapter 1, and then we'll, we'll discuss here. It says, in Jonah 1, 17, And the Lord, that is the name of God, Yahweh, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that is the land of the dead, out of the belly of the grave is the idea, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regards regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with the voice of thanksgiving, 
I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So here's where we are today. Uh, last time we considered Jonah's interactions with the sailors, and this time we start with Jonah's rescue, as Jonah is beginning to take some steps onto the path of grace. And so we're going to look at this. We'll start, I'm, I'm, honestly, I'm not really going to say very much about chapter 17. Uh, when I was a child, I was extremely interested in fish and whales and sea monsters and was very eager to know everything that the Bible tells us about this fish. And you just read it. That's everything. There's really nothing else to say. Uh, the, the scriptures have no interest in the specific uh, nature of this creature. But I will say, just in passing, so that we're all on the same page, sometimes people read this and really feel uncomfortable, and they say, well, you can't survive in a fish. Like, that's, that's mm. like if a fish ate you, you would just die. You wouldn't live for three days. Yeah, and that would be a really big problem if we weren't Christians, and the basis of our faith wasn't predicated on things like young virgins becoming pregnant or people coming back to the dead, or 5,000 people eating a handful of loaves of bread, or the creator of the universe becoming a human being, this is no more problematic for us than anything else. Uh, if, if we're Christians, then we're all in, and a fish eating Jonah and him living for three days is really pretty par for the course. It's not even like top-rank miracle in terms of impressiveness. This is just a thing that God does. And in the context of the book of Jonah as well, this fits in quite clearly because again and again, we see people um, in conflict with God and God using his divine authority over nature to bring that conflict to a resolution. He does it at the very beginning when Jonah's like, I'm out of here. And God says, well, I'm just going to put a storm right here and then we're going to have a chat. And Jonah's like, I'm dying. And God says, here's a fish, come back. And later on, we're going to see God do the same thing with a little plant. Very, very critical plant. Which no one ever complains that a plant grew up over Jonah. They always complain about the whale. But from the perspective of the book, all of these things are the same. God is doing these things to bring his people back into a conversation and, and a confrontation that needs to happen with him. So, so much... For the fish, certainly it's a miracle. That's all we really need to know about it. Jonah uh, really clearly understands that this is a miracle. Um, because, hey, you can't live in a fish. Uh, but here he is, alive in the fish. Jonah, uh, in this situation, stunned, grateful to be alive, gives thanks to God. And so chapter 2 is mainly taken up with his prayer in the form of a psalm. And in this prayer, the message of this book continues to unfold as we see Jonah taking some admittedly stumbling steps back toward where God is calling him to be. So let's look, let's look at this prayer in a little bit more detail, detail, and then we are going to discuss. This prayer, like I said, is in the form of a psalm. There are other psalms 
similar to it in the book of Psalms that recount God's saving action on behalf of his people. So you can find Psalms uh, such as, for example, Psalm 116, among many others, where someone's in big trouble and then God acts to rescue them and they recount their trouble and their prayer and then God's saving action and then their praise to him. That's the similar pattern that we see here. And so the first thing in this psalm that we read is the terrible trouble that Jonah's in. He's at the moment that he offers up this prayer, verse 1 tells us he's still in the fish. So he's had time to get chucked off the boat, to sink down into the ocean, to just about die, to be rescued. And then what is there to do inside a miraculous fish but reflect? And so Jonah is reflecting. And out of his reflections come this prayer that begins with uh, his encounter face to face with death. Jonah thinks that God is going to kill him. And I think it's noteworthy. It says here in verse 3, for you, he's praying to God, and he says, for you threw me into the deep and in the heart of the sea and the flood surrounded me and all your waves and billows passed over me. So Jonah's seeing his encounter with death as something that God is doing to him. This, like we mentioned last time, might be what Jonah was expecting as a result of his rebellion, right? Jonah tries to bail out. There's the big storm. The sailors are like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, yes, I work for the all-powerful God who created all things. And the sailors are like, what? And then Jonah says, but it's okay. Just throw me into the ocean and you'll be spared. And, and it's not super clear, you recall, but Jonah's thought process seems to be that God is going to kill him for his misdeeds. That's what the storm, Jonah's thinking, that's what the storm is here for. It's to punish me for my rebellion. And so if you guys just throw me in the ocean, God won't kill you. He's not after you. He's just going to kill me. And so that seems to be what he is thinking. He sees in verse 7, the, uh, or not, sorry, not in verse 7, here in verse 6, the, the, the doors, the gates of death closing over him. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So he's really, you know, his life is flashing before his eyes. And it's interesting, this phrase, we mentioned this already, in, the, in a previous message, when God gets this commission, or when Jonah gets this commission from God, Jonah says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he goes down to Joppa. You remember that? And then he goes down into the ship. And once he's on the ship, he goes down into the hold of the ship. And then they throw him down into the ocean. And this is as far down as he ever gets. He sinks down, verse 6, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is Jonah's lowest point and he is completely out he, he, he can't do anything he has no power to fight he has no power to run and in that moment Jonah realizes that he didn't he he doesn't actually want what he thought he wanted but Jonah had this kind of like idea that he was going to do this crazy thing and, and run away from God. And when the storm comes, Jonah's like, well, this, this is it. You know, 
he, he doesn't say, turn around, I have to go to Assyria. He says, just throw me in the ocean and I'll just die rather than, rather than face what God asked me to do. And now he's about to die. He's at the moment of his death. This, the Hebrew here is very, very um, expressive uh, here in verse 6, or sorry, in verse 5, uh, where it, it says, the waters closed in over me. That literally means the waters were at my throat. And at this moment where death is right on top of him, he realizes, actually, I don't know. I don't want to die. Death, bad plan. This, is, this was a terrible idea. And in that moment, Jonah finally, for the first time in this book, prays. We don't read about Jonah struggling with God when he's sent on a commission to Assyria. We just read about him running away. Jonah, you recall, does not pray when the pagan sailors beg him to pray. Instead, he just says, no, it's all over. You guys just have to kill me. But now that his life is about to end, he prays. And he prays, and again, I think this is really interesting, the phrase that's used in in the very first verse, it says, then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish. He's praying to his God. He's He's back in some kind of a relationship with God. This is where he kind of started out and where he didn't want to be. Jonah's goal originally was to escape from God's presence, but now twice he uses this phrase about his prayer coming to God's temple. Verse 4, it says, I'll look again upon your holy temple, or verse Seven, it says, my prayer came into your holy temple. And what's the temple? Well, Jonah certainly would have known, and and maybe you know as well, that the temple was the place where God's presence was uniquely found on earth. Right? Like God is the God of all places and all people and all times. Jonah understood that. He said that to the sailors, right? But God's presence is found in a special way in the temple. So, Jonah is like, hey, I'm out of here. I don't, I'm running from God's presence. But now he's praying, thinking of God's presence. He has turned around. He has, at his lowest moment, he has found that what he thought he wanted is not actually what he wanted at all. And he calls out to God. And he is rescued. It says in verse 2 that God answered him. And God heard him. He heard his voice, even in the darkest place. And so this kind of like stepwise motion of going down, 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 finally is over. You have this verse 6. He says, when I came down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, you brought up my life from the pit. O Yahweh, my God. So all that going down is over. God brings him back up. Up, not just up from the ocean, which is, you know, great, but up from death, up from Sheol, up from the grave. That's the thing that Jonah can't escape from. And so here in verse 8 and 9, we have Jonah's worship. Jonah rejoices in the living kindness of God. He says, it's translated here in verse 8, steadfast love he says those who pay regard to vain idols that is those who worship 
false gods, pagans, people maybe like the sailors on the boat up there, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. God is loving and kind toward his people. And to worship an idol means to turn away from all that. But here God is rescuing me. I am able to experience the kind, patient, merciful love of God. And so because of that, verse 9, he promises an appropriate response. He promises sacrifice. He promises thanksgiving. Open worship. And verse 9 ends with this great phrase that really expresses the, the, the theme or the concept of the whole book. In fact, it is, uh, I think, a great candidate to express in a very small phrase the message of the entire word of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And remember, this when we see this in all capital letters, the Lord, that's the name of God. That's the personal name of God that he expresses to his people, Yahweh. Salvation belongs to the Lord, or salvation belongs to Yahweh. And so again and again in a book, in this book, we're going to see that theme. Here are the people in Nineveh. They're courting disaster with their terrible behavior, but there's a message for them. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. I want you to go and give them this message because salvation belongs to Yahweh. And Jonah is going to say, no way, I'm out of here. And he's going to totally embark on a plan, a very thorough plan to ruin his life. But salvation belongs to the Lord. And here are these sailors, powerless in the face of the storm. They can't do anything about it. But that's okay because salvation belongs to the Lord. And all these pagan gods that they're calling out to, have no ability to rescue them. But that's not important because salvation belongs to the Lord. And here's Jonah sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. His plan has worked way too well. It was a terrible plan. He's now finally realizing that he has no options left. But salvation belongs to the Lord. So the story's not over. And it keeps going after that. Just think about what you know about the narrative here in Jonah. He's going to show up and he's going to give God's message. Hey, everyone here in Assyria, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. So what? Do we all just give up? Like, that's it? This is the end of the world? No, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jonah is going to be furious about that. And he is going to rant and rage against God's kindness. And you think, yikes, this guy cannot escape the lightning bolt that is coming for him. But you would be wrong because salvation belongs to the Lord. And even in the broader pattern of the entire Old Testament, here are God's people, and they just keep doing this. I mean, look, this, this book of Jonah is a part of the message of the prophets. And here's this prophet and here are these kings, and here are those priests, and there are those patriarchs. And again and again, they get something from God, and they just completely mess it up. They cannot do it. And yet there's not a reason to despair, because salvation belongs to the Lord. How does all this ever work? Will you just turn over to the New Testament and read the good news that salvation belongs to the Lord? 
This is the message that comes so clearly to us even in a, a confusing situation like Jonah's. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a wonderful thing to pray. It's a wonderful thing to hold on to. And it's a wonderful place that Jonah has come to where he's not trying to run away from God anymore. He's, he's not, you know, he's not doing all the stuff he was going to do. Now he's turned around. And in a minute we're going to see him <coughs> take this commission on again and go out and try to discharge it. And he's holding on to this truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. That is great. But as we take a second look at this psalm, it's clear that everything has not been set right for Jonah. This is an unusual psalm. And if this book makes it clear <coughs> that sometimes God's salvation, the salvation that belongs to the Lord, sometimes that salvation comes in a moment, in a transforming moment, just like it did for the pagan sailors in the last chapter. At the same time, it's equally clear that sometimes the salvation that comes from the Lord is a very long and painful process. And so it is for Jonah. Let's look again at his prayer. There's something critical that is missing in this psalm of praise. Perhaps you noticed it as we read it before. But if, if you're not sure, just take a look again. The heart of this psalm is missing. And what is it? You can see it more easily if we look at a parallel psalm, a passage that Jonah would have known really well. I told you before that this psalm followed a, a familiar pattern where the person praying is in trouble and they cry out to God. God hears their prayer and delivers them, and then they worship him for that deliverance. But there are actually two similar styles of psalms that we see in this Psalter. The first one is the one that I just mentioned, where the person is in trouble, although they're following God. And the second kind of format that we see in this Psalter is where the person is in trouble because they've done something terribly wrong. Now, which of those two situations is, does Jonah find himself in? It is not the first. It is the second situation. Jonah is in this ocean because of some choices that he made with extreme deliberateness. And so let's look at an example of how this is expressed normally in the Psalms. This is a familiar passage. Psalm 32 is one that that Jonah would have known very well, very, very well. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For night and day your hand was heavy on me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So here's the trouble that he's in. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here he is, 
calling out to God, praying to God. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here's God's rescue of him. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And there's, there's the worship. There's the contrast with unbelievers and the worship that we just saw in Jonah. So what's the difference between these two psalms then? What is Jonah totally not doing? He does not confess or so much as even mention or acknowledge any wrongdoing on his part. Jonah, as far as we could tell from this psalm, if we didn't have the rest of the book, we might imagine that Jonah was just out walking on the beach, you know, and suddenly, bam, God tries to kill him with the ocean. Oh, and I prayed, and then you didn't, and you put me back. Thank you so much. Jonah is grievously misrepresenting the situation here. Because in fact, he's the one who put himself in the ocean. Initially, by running away from God. And then, very, very literally, by telling the sailors to throw him in. And it seems a little bit maybe one-sided to then go on and say in verse 3, you threw me into the deep. Yes, technically yes, but there's more to the story. Jonah is still not thinking clearly. And in his prayer, he does not take responsibility for what brought him to this point. You remember when we talked about Jonah's interactions with the sailors that there's some pretty brutal irony in his back and forth with them. Same thing here in this prayer. Um, In verse 5, it says, sorry, verse 4, it says uh, this, Jonah says this. He said, I am driven away from your sight, and yet I shall look again upon, I shall again look upon your holy temple. That phrase, I'm driven away from your sight, It's not the same word, but uh, it's definitely uh, very similar in idea to God's presence. This is why some of the modern translations render that line, I was driven away from your presence. And yet, it was Jonah himself who was desperate to escape from God's presence. He wasn't driven away from God's presence. He, He left He did the leaving. And when he says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, he's contrasting his own devotion to God with the faithlessness of pagans. Now, there's a lot of pagans in the world. We don't know who Jonah's thinking of. 
But the pagans that we just met at the end of chapter 1 have put their trust in God. They're, while Jonah is still going around at the bottom of the ocean inside a fish, they've sailed back to port and literally done what he says he's going to do. They have offered sacrifices and they have paid vows to God. They've already done it. Jonah Jonah has problems. He's got some big problems. Problems that his prayer makes plain. Jonah is not running from God anymore. He's alive and he is praying. And that is great. That is something to be thankful for. For Jonah and for all of us. But whether he realizes or not, and it it does not, I would say there's no indication in this text that he does realize it, there is a lot of distance left for him to cover, right? This, this prayer might be prayed by someone who thinks that everything is resolved, everything's taken care of, right? It, it was bad before, but now it's all good. And now we're all fixed up. And yet, clearly, Jonah is not all fixed up. Even if we didn't have chapters 3 and 4 uh, to make plain to us, how far Jonah is from being fixed up. Just this prayer would do it. And so it is a really good thing that we know that this text tells us that salvation does not belong to Jonah. It belongs to the Lord. Uh, Jonah has not got his problem sorted out. But that is not the end of the story for Jonah because salvation belongs to the Lord, not to him. And we are going to see God's salvation worked out in Jonah's life step by step as we progress through the remainder of this narrative. God's faithful love, that's the word that we mentioned earlier here in in verse 8 where Jonah is praying and he says that these Uh, pagans, these idolaters, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. That word that he uses there is a really rich word. Steadfast love. Or maybe if you have a King James, it's translated there, mercy. mercy. It's a word that includes concepts like love and loyalty and kindness and commitment. That's God's stance, his attitude toward his people God's loyal love is what brings salvation Jonah's life is a train wreck but it is not Jonah following the right religious rituals that bring salvation it is God's settled attitude of patient committed love it is not Jonah's correct prayer and his mastery, which he demonstrates right here in this beautiful little psalm, his mastery of the forms of worship that resolves Jonah's problems, it is God's enduring mercy. It is not Jonah's national or family connections that are going to solve his problem. It is not Jonah's appropriate rituals at the temple. It's not Jonah's knowing the scriptures. It's not any of that stuff 
And as we're going to see in the next part of the story, some of that stuff actually is at the heart of his problem. He knows a lot of this stuff in the wrong way. But fortunately for him and fortunately for us, God's love is patient and loyal and committed and transformative. So that even when Jonah prays this very self-centered prayer, I mean, just think about how you would feel if someone had treated you terribly and then they came and said, hey, I'm glad everything's cleared up between us. Like, you know, you were pretty angry with me, but that's cool now. That's really where Jonah leaves it. God does not execute him for that any more than he executes him for running away. Because God's love is transformative. It is slow, it is long, it is enduring. That is the kind of love that Jonah needs. It's not going to end well for him otherwise. And that is the kind of love that we need. God's justice, God's refusal to let Jonah's wrongdoing just go. God doesn't say to Jonah, listen, you're kind of a creep, but it's okay. God doesn't do that to Jonah. What Jonah is doing is seriously wrong. Just the same as what the Assyrians were doing is seriously wrong. God's justice is here. But God's justice and punishment on sin and God's mercy and patient love connect to each other. That circle closes in the life of Jesus, his son, God's son. And Jonah's miraculous preservation in this fish for three days and three nights, as we know from the New Testament, is a picture. Just a little picture, a little flash of light, illuminating the real journey to death that Jesus experienced. Jonah was three days and nights under the surface of the ocean, but Jesus actually died. And unlike Jonah, he did not die because of his own stupidity and sin, but because he saw clearly where no one else did. And because he had no sin. And we did. Jesus died because he had no sin. That was the only way for his moral perfection to overcome our sin. It was the only way for our rebellion in big or small ways, like things that Jonah is doing here, to be corrected, for God's patient love to be actually brought into being in our lives. In Jesus' death, he accepted all the judgment due on rebels, from Adam and Eve to Jonah to us. And as with Jonah, God's purposes through Jesus are not just to rescue. God doesn't bring Jonah back out and dump him on the beach and say, all right, now that's finished. Now you're on your own. God's purpose for Jonah is to transform. For those of us this morning who hear the word of God, this afternoon who hear the word of God, God, God knows where we're at. And you might be able to identify very, very well with this idea, with this sentiment of being in a place where you think you're okay. You might be able to think of a time in your life when you were like this. You thought everything had been fixed up 
And it wasn't until much later that you realized how far off base you were. How completely wrong you were. Being in a situation like that is, is always something that we're thankful to be out of. But once you've been there once or you've seen someone else be there once, you realize that that could happen again. Right? Jonah does, is not in full possession of his faculties. That's the problem. The sin messes you up in your head. You think everything's all working, but it's really not working at all. If, like Jonah, you or I find ourselves this morning in a situation where, well, yes, we know for sure that this one thing was seriously badly out of shape, but now things are in a better situation, and you're not sure if everything's actually resolved or not, then you can take heart in knowing God's attitude toward you. And you can take clarity for the next steps in knowing what God intends for you. God does not intend for any one of us, any more than he does for Jonah, to be brought back from the brink of death and then just left in kind of a miserable circle of selfishness and cluelessness. God intends for us, wherever we are, whether we're down to Jaffa or down on the ship or down in the hold, or down in the water, or down one mouthful of seawater away from our death to call out to him. And he will bring us up. And his purpose is never to bring us up one level so that we can live there. His purpose is always to bring us all the way up to where he is. If you, or if I, or if any of us this morning are in that spot where we're not really sure where we're at. God knows. And he is calling us to call to him and to embrace his purposes of transformation. Because that is the way that he treats his people with steadfast love. Let's pray.